We're in chapter 13 uh, of the story of Jesus is written by a man named Matthew. And um, I was I was trying to think of like we just kind of had a journey through Matthew. Right. And uh, there's, there's all kinds of stuff going on. I was trying to think, well, you know, how what has Jesus been doing up to this point? Um, or what should you be thinking about in the context of understanding what's going on in chapter 13? And for some reason, my mind kept coming back to Matthew chapter one. And at the very start of Matthew, and this is true for, for three of the other gospels, um, there's a genealogy. There's a genealogy of Jesus Christ. But that word genealogy, the Greek word is genesis. And it's, it's the same root word that we use to come up with Genesis, the chapter or the first book of the Bible, right? And it's interesting that that is the specific word that Matthew uses because he orients us to say, this is the history of Jesus. And it is a new beginning. We are to look at, at the arrival of Jesus onto the scene as if creation is starting anew. And it brings with it the weight and expectation of what that is. And so through his genealogy, we see Jesus progress. And uh, John the Baptist goes before him and says, the kingdom of heaven is here or is at hand. And Jesus is saying the same thing. And he starts traveling about and he's preaching and he's teaching and he's healing. And through this whole process, he's sharing the good news or the gospel of this kingdom that he has come to establish. And this good news, though, lands differently upon the various ears of which the message reaches. See, those that are part of the Roman government hear a man proclaiming a kingdom that would aim to replace that which is currently in power. And you can understand that this is offensive, like rebellious news, of which they become increasingly wary and irritated with. The Jewish people, on the other hand, are excited at the prospect of a savior, a messiah, that will bring about their liberation. See, due to their rebellion against God 800 years prior to the time of Jesus, they were taken into captivity by the nation of Assyria and then Babylon, and they've lost their autonomy. They've lost their land that was given to them by God, and at times, their ability to worship God as they wish. And since that time, they've longed for their fortunes to be restored, for God to crush their enemies, to be out from under the taxes and the regulations and the ungodly influence of the various governments that have ruled over them since. However, for all these expectations, Jesus isn't quite what they're looking for. See, Jesus is offering a kingdom, but it's one that progresses through peace not the sword. He offers a kingdom that not only doesn't annihilate its enemies, but it will invite them to repent, and profess fealty and allegiance to Jesus and join in his new kingdom for themselves. Jesus is offering a kingdom where the humble are exalted and the proud are brought low. This isn't what they're looking for. They wanted a new kingdom, but not this one. The Jewish leadership wanted their enemies crushed. They wanted their Power and influence expanded. They wanted what was lost in their rebellion restored to them. But Jesus doesn't seem to care about trying to compete with other kingdoms on their terms. The King Jesus sets his own terms. And so in Matthew 13, we see him continuing to talk about what this kingdom is like. What are the terms in which this kingdom moves? How does it function? How do people react? Where is it going? And that's that's what we're running into at the start of chapter 13 as he starts to tell these parables. And uh, he's in a crowd of folks when he's telling this parable. And here's how it starts. He says, he put another parable for them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came up and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weed? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. 
At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Here's the thing that Jesus has done in, in Matthew chapter 13. Is generally the gig, if you're sitting on the stool here, is Jesus says something and then I come up here and I say, well, here's what Jesus is talking about. But if things are good and right and well in the world, Jesus has followed up what he just said and provides an explanation on his own. This is beneficial for you. This is the best thing that could have possibly happened. And that's exactly what he has done. You wait just a few verses later, he's going to tell you what this parable means. And so rather than inserting my foot into mouth and trying to say something better than Jesus has, we're just going to read what Jesus said so that we can under, understand the parable better. Uh, so here's what he says. He says, then he left the crowds and went into the house. Actually, that's kind of an important distinction. One of the things that we haven't really talked about in this section of Matthew is he's, he's set up a pretty uh, distinct dichotomy. Um, people that have ears to hear, people that will, are willing to listen, people that are reacting one way to the kingdom of heaven, people that are reacting the other way to the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, that ears to hear, ears to hear phrase, don't be saying that outside of this church building. It's a weird, weird thing to say. It makes it sound like we don't understand the basic biology of how an ear works. Okay. So, but what it means is, is he's highlighting the thing that says, if, if he's bringing this message of the kingdom, there are some people that want to hear it and these parables will expand that. They will know it and they will know it deeper than they knew before. And there are people who don't want to listen. Um, in the context of the Isaiah quote that comes just before this, it's a rebellious people. People who don't want to learn anymore. And the truth is, these parables will not help that. As a matter of fact, they will become more confused. And so you even see this dichotomy in the parables that he's telling, where he's, he says this broad thing to a big crowd that's listening. And it tends to be the disciples that get the more detailed information. or They get the explanation. Because if we're to take from what he's talking about here, it's that they have ears to hear. They have a desire to understand more. And they are given that by Jesus kind of explaining it more to them. But here's what he says. He left the crowds and went to the house. As disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So as I was thinking about this week, I thought, Jesus, is, like he's put me out of work here. Right? He says the thing, and then he explains the thing, and then now what am I supposed to do? So I'm kind of praying all, all week. I'm like, i got to sit on the stool, Jesus. You know I have to come up here. And uh, so I was kind of praying on it, praying on it. And I thought, you know, as I was reading through this parable, it reminded me of some things. And I remember thinking, I'm, I was glad was happy and kind of energized to be reminded of some of these things that were in this parable. So I thought, I'll just share that, right? There's no reason to go trying to capitalize on what Jesus explained. But I can I can tell you the things that I was reminded about this week when it comes to this parable. Um, and, and basically how we can understand within the context of what Jesus is saying. And so the first thing that I was uh, glad to be reminded of after reading this parable this week is that the owner of the field is not your average owner. Like sometimes Jesus gives, uh, tells stories and it could be just, it's not necessarily him or it's kind of like a general life lesson. Um, but he's the owner of the field, right? It's the son of man that sows, which means he owns the field. You should go start sowing in somebody else's field. He owns the field, which puts this conversation into a little bit of a different context. When he says son of man, that's a distinction that would have, would have fallen very interestingly on the ears, on the ears of the Jewish people that were listening. The son of man harkens back to a Daniel chapter seven. It's a, 
uh, it promises this coming of a, of a future kingdom. And, and this king that is given all power and honor and glory and authority. And it's Jesus that refers to himself as the son of man. It's not other people that are saying this is the son of man. It's him. He's saying, I am he. And so when he's telling this story as the owner of the field, like this isn't just some run-of-the-mill field of which we are to learn how to live our lives. It is. It harkens back to this conquering king and the kingdom that he brings. And so that weight then adds into the rest of the parable. So I need to be reminded that Jesus is king. I need to be reminded that as he tells this story, the impacts are broader than how do I treat other people. It's the king has a field and he sows the world. All right. So I need to, I like to be reminded of that as I go through the story. The second thing was that the devil is not a creator. He's a petty spoiler of what God calls good. Notice what happens here. The field is sown and the devil cannot undo or destroy the wheat that has been planted. He could only add his weeds, right? The thing, if you're really going to sully someone's crop, right? You would dig it up. You would cause it so it doesn't show up at all. But he can't ruin that of which God has created. He can just try to spoil it. And so you see him planting weeds, putting his evil next to it in hopes of ruining that which is good. The devil is not created. He's just destructive. And his only claim to fame really is who he opposes. Well, the only reason we talk about the devil is because the word Satan literally means opponent. Okay, He's important to us only because he opposes God. Otherwise, he doesn't have power on his own. He's not creating on his own. Sometimes we get a little bit too interested in learning about Satan. Like the, the Bible itself seems largely unconcerned with him. You're talking 25 references or less, and that, that's probably being gracious on the words that describe Satan or devil. So if you're buying a book somewhere that proposes to talk to you about what you need to know about Satan, and it's more than 50 pages, put it back. Okay? The Bible, Jesus is not simply concerned with him. So we need to be careful that we don't spend too much time being concerned with what he's up to. It's blindness to act like there isn't an opponent. Just be careful on how much effort you're putting into something that the Bible doesn't seem to really care about all that much, except to acknowledge his existence. Okay, but he's, he's a destructor. His greatest successes uh, are when he's able to take something that points us to God and turn it into something that points back to us. And I was thinking of an example this week, and I thought about sex. And don't get all Puritan on me. I know you're all thinking about sex, too. All this business, please don't say that. So, but, but here's the thing. Sex is something that God created that represents love and commitment and joy and pleasure and something that as it culminates creates life. And we can look at a modern treatment of this gift and, and can't help but think an enemy did this. See, the thing that was supposed to be for mutual joy becomes all about individual pleasure. Or maybe it's something you use or withhold to control your spouse, to gain power over them, to manipulate them. What? What happened to this gift? It's a gift we've mistaken for a right. Something some of us think we deserve, whether in context of a marriage or not. We don't get what, we, what we're after. We'll just find what we want somewhere else. We'll find the enjoyment in a magazine, or we'll find it online, or perhaps with somebody else who will let things be physical without having to commit all the emotional effort and time that it takes to nurture a relationship and share amazing, special moments with the person that God gave you. Sex outside of that context is an empty promise. We need to watch out. The devil is no creator. He is simply sowing weeds, sabotaging that which God has called good. And here's the deal. We're citizens of the kingdom, servants and co-heirs with the high king Jesus, and we shall settle for nothing less than what the Father has created. No Satan-tainted, shallow, selfish substitute will be accepted. And that takes us to the next one. An enemy did this. Sometimes I need to be reminded that there is an enemy. That's a fact. 
See, what God has created has been sabotaged, and there are people being fooled by the darnell. That's the that's the weed. And it's a pernicious weed. It looks a heck of a lot like wheat, and still it starts producing fruit. But what it produces is poisonous black seeds. People are being poisoned. And we spend a lot of our time yelling at the weeds, which is about as effective literally as it is allegorically. The culture has changed, okay? No prayer in schools. No Ten Commandments in the government buildings. Boo-hoo! Our solution, what we usually try to do, is demand a bigger sign at the front of the field that says, Weeds only. That'll fix it. That'll straighten it out. We demand that you say Christmas. Say Christmas. We demand that you put the Ten Commandments monument back. And while we're gathering wood for the Weeds only sign, and printing the flyers to demand that the word Christmas be said by the employer at the store, where we often go to worship stuff and find appropriate idols to demonstrate our wealth, and while we've gotten a Facebook group together and a meeting time to protest the removal of the monument, because we just can't imagine that God's justice is coming into conflict with that of which is determined as right or wrong in the eyes of the world, the weeds remain unaware that they're being ripped off, that they've been sold an empty sack, a false promise. That $99 iPad that you scored from the internet that only turns on when you kind of tilt it upside down and put Tabasco sauce in a headphone jack. An enemy has done that. And we spend our time demanding that if they're going to be weeds, they can at least put on the wig and the jacket that makes them look like wheat. That they can at least follow the law that we put in place so that we could be fooled into thinking that they're wheat. If they could at least say that they're wheat, so we can be comforted that our nation is going in the right direction. See, we spend our time fighting a facade. We want to show. We try to paint or hide the fruit instead of asking God to remake the tree. And an enemy has done that. And that's to us. An enemy has done that. I told you the Jews were upset because Jesus wasn't crushing his enemies. He was revealing himself and his kingdom to them and inviting them to be part of it. The weeds are blind. They've been fooled. They do not understand that the gifts they have from the opponent are not what God created. They are forged, shadows of what God has actually done. At the end of Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus is going around teaching and healing, notice he doesn't lash out at those who he's talking to. He doesn't lash out at those who are sick. He looks at the disciples and says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The workers are few. How often are we complaining about the harvest? No one wants to listen. I don't know how to have a conversation. Look what the, what's coming to the world. Jesus looks at that same world and he says, the workers are few. Jesus seems to be concerned that the workers of his kingdom will rise up and do the work of it. We often seem to spend our time cursing the field for not being what we want it to be. Stop yelling at the weeds. An enemy has done it. And through the creator, it can be undone. Introduce them to the creator. The one that makes the difference. I was reminded this week that I should be very thankful that God's mercy and justice is different than mine. Jesus said, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat to my barn. Can't you hear what the servants are asking? There's poison in your field, sir. There's evil in the world. Why do you permit this one moment more? 
Why did you not snuff it out right when you saw it? It reminds me of one of my favorite parts of Adam and Eve's story. So God creates Adam and Eve. And he creates them in this paradise. And he says, you can't eat of this tree. That's it. Everything else is yours. Genesis chapter 3 records, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. I love that. Lord walking in the garden in the cool day. You can hear God interacting with this world as he walks through his creation. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? That's funny. That was kind of funny. Like God doesn't know where they're at. That's kind of funny. I, but why does he do that? Because he's dealing with humans. Right? Who don't get to see inside his mind. That's that's beautiful too. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the story jumps a little bit and continues. It says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments and skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You just, you see God's reaction. He gave them paradise. Right relations between man and God, man and creation, and man and himself. And he told them not to do one thing, one thing. And they did it. And suddenly they know shame in something that God didn't create for shame. They're naked. Who told you you were naked? They betrayed God, betrayed his love, care and relationship. And the consequences are devastating for humanity. I don't, like we're, we're in that today. Like what they did there impacts the world we live in today. I don't think we can overstate. What has happened by them disobeying God and sin entering the world? And how does God react? He closed them. They shouldn't even know they were naked. But in grace and love, he creates clothes for them. And he sends them out of Eden and he puts an angel there to guard the tree of life to ensure that there was no chance of them to eat of that fruit and live forever in their current fallen state. What mercy is this? A mercy my human heart can barely comprehend. Think of what they've done. Think of what they've thrown back in God's face to attain a higher position for themselves. Think of what their actions have declared to God. I am not satisfied with this. I shall have more. They deserved swift retribution. Evil was present and God could have destroyed the whole place and started over in that moment. Or frankly, he could have removed them from existence and made new humans. Certainly there's more dust around. He owes us nothing to tolerate his creation being sullied in this way. And yet, God permits them to stay in the creation that they have tarnished. He covers their shame with clothes that he personally made and sends them away from danger. Where is the justice in that? Why do you let evil continue in this way, God? Why haven't you eliminated it from the world? Why do you tolerate your people being beheaded for their faith in you? Why do you allow such atrocities to happen to children? Why do you permit war and pride and greed and destruction and death? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? 
Apostle Paul is always here to remind us of stuff when we get all fired up. And he said the following three things that I feel like are helpful. Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He said, the wages of sin is death. And he said, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ has died for us. Maybe let me rephrase our protest. Rephrase our question. Why do you tolerate the way I ignore your instruction? Why do you tolerate my pride and my arrogance? Why do you tolerate the things that I have done to the people that you have created? Where is your justice upon me? I deserve death and it has not come and I demand that you answer to it. Sounds different, doesn't it? That's what we're asking. See, we want to take advantage of his mercy while everyone else gets his justice. We want him to bless those that we think he should bless and curse those that we think he should curse. If that sounds familiar to you, that means we've stepped into God's territory, which it is not our responsibility. We decry his patience for the murderer, but we praise it when he withholds his judgment from that new agey friend we have who worships the moon and we think might come to love Jesus someday. Thanks for your patience, God. We want God to take instant vengeance upon the things that we are offended at, the things that hurt us or cause us grief. But we want him to have patience for our sin, for our blind friends, for our stubborn family, for our misguided children. We are duplicitous, fickle, biased, and selfish creatures who distribute mercy where we believe it to be deserved or earned. Praise God, it isn't I who sits in the seat of judgment. And I hope this doesn't offend you, but praise God that that's not you either. I saw someone on... a. Facebook this week, and they posted a sweet picture of like an elm in a sunset. And it said, uh, everything you need is already within yourself. And I thought, okay, that's supposed to be inspiring and motivating. And I thought about it for a second. I thought, underneath this Adonis-like figure I cut here is shadow and darkness. And I don't say that because like, oh, woe is me, we're shadows of darkness. But like, it's true. Maybe this doesn't happen to you guys, but like, I, I love Jesus. I still have things in my life where I'll just be walking down the street and something pops in my head and I'm like, that's terrible. I've had times where I've been in a conversation with someone and all of a sudden words come out of my mouth and I could, anything I could do to pull them back in and say, I don't mean that. I didn't mean to say that. I don't know why that's even in my mind. I'm, I'm not thinking that about you, but, but it's happened. And in, in times of, of duress or stress or trial, I'm tempted with foolish things that are not of God. Because within me is shadow. And that's who I'm going to trust. To make these quick judgments. To say what's right or wrong. See what, really what I'm concerned about is I say, if God isn't doing what I think is right or wrong, I, I want him to bend to that. It's not that he's right and I should submit. It's that I'm right and he should act like me. My sense of justice should be damned and cast from the earth where it doesn't line up with the heart of my king. I often don't want justice. I want revenge. I will forgo the lasting joy of forgiveness for the temporary satisfaction of retribution. This parable should remind us of the mercy of our king who permits the weeds to grow up with the wheat. A king who is patient, waiting for all that will come to him whose mercies are new every morning and who is able to make weeds into weeds. That patience, that mercy has allowed us 
us in this room the opportunity to become citizens of the kingdom. Our sense of worldly justice is false when it wishes to deny that mercy from another person who God undeservedly offers it to. So I was, I was thinking about all these things, right? Like uh, trying to wrap my mind around what, what, what am I saying is then I don't get to get indignant about. Or I have to be patient where God is merciful and I don't want to be. And it kept just bringing all these different things into my mind about things you read in the news or things that are going around in people's lives around me. And like, what's this, what's this world coming to? Like, really, like, what is this, what is this coming to? Where's this all going? What's it coming to? And I think the last part of the parable actually speaks to that. It says, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun. In the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. So God creates this beautiful paradise. And he gives what can only be an act of love, people the choice as to whether to submit to him or not, and they choose against him. And yet he looks out and says, this will be made right. In patience and mercy, I will make it right. And so he starts that process working through his people and ultimately through his son to send people out and start putting the world to rights, to start regathering that which is his, which is beautiful, which is created. Created to be with him. And at the, at the, at the end of everything, what you find is God looks down and says that there's a point that it's enough. It's enough. Everyone who is coming to me has come to me. And justice will be served where it is deserved. And glory will be revealed. And so he looks down at the earth and he says, I will rid it of that which is, has sullied what I've created. And I will lift from the earth those who belong to me. They're just going to hang for a while while I send fire. Not to destroy this earth, because here's the thing. Genesis 1, it is good. He created a good world. But no, it will not be destroyed. It is reclaimed. It is rejuvenated. It is refreshed through fire. And then we return with Christ to live forever in this kingdom that he has promised. But what is this world coming to? Glory. This world is coming to Glory. That of which reveals the character of God, in which there is justice. This notion for things being put to right is it's not a wrong thing. It's just we want to do it on our timetable and in our ways, and that's what is false. But we are created with this sense of justice, that things to be made right, because through us, God is working those things out to be made right, and will ultimately put them entirely to right at the end of everything. See, in this parable, we're not only learn about the kingdom, but the kingdom is a reflection of the king. And in the face of evil, our king is triumphant. All will be made right. Our king is just and good and righteous. Evil will not go undealt with. Justice delayed in mercy is not justice denied. And this world is not long for glory, in which the depth of both his justice and his mercy will be fully revealed. And for those who follow Jesus have given up all other allegiances to serve him, we will shine like the sun. That's beautiful. That's the promise of the kingdom. But all of this leaves us with a, with a real simple question, which is, do you trust the king? Because as I look out, it's very easy if I trust the king to say, you know what? I see injustice and I see this pain in the world and I don't know how to deal with it personally, but I trust that the king has it under control. If I do not trust the king, then those promises mean nothing. You understand? Like This is why sometimes it's not helpful. When we talk to people that don't love Jesus, we say, God's got it. They don't know him. They don't know who they're trusting. 
and we press and we keep talking to the wheat or the weeds and we say, hey, you're going to get this. Just trust in God. Just, they don't know him. And so if I trust the king, I can look at horrible things and say, I hate this. But God is good and his mercy is deep and his justice is right. And I, this will be handled. This will be taken care of. And so as we sit today, as we look out on a world that sometimes we don't know what to do with, can we remind ourselves that the king has got this? He's got this thing under control. And because just because it's not my mercy and it's not my justice, actually, thank God for that. Thank God that it's his mercy and his justice. And I trust him to deal it out appropriately. And maybe you don't know him this morning. And I can't make you any promises about something changing your life on earth. Because frankly, you look down and we say, what's this world coming to? It's a right reaction at times. But I can promise you that the king is good. And that he is faithful. And that he is righteous. And that he is merciful. And he is just. And if you want to know more about him, I'd love to be able to part of that conversation. If there's someone that, if you don't even talk to me, if there's someone that you're close to, someone that you know that loves and follows Jesus, ask them. They know. They've met the king. We have a prayer room back there. I'd love to be able to pray with you if that's, with, uh, if that's something that you'd be interested in doing. But let's, let's not leave here not being reminded of who the king is, what he promises, the kingdom that we live in. We live in today, by the way. Sometimes we live and say, this kingdom can't be here. Really? He said weeds and weeds grow up together. The fact that evil is in the world is not good evidence that the kingdom is not here. Jesus said it was, which means we are living the farthest away from that eventual glory than you will ever get. Welcome to today. It's a good day. And the king is good. Let's pray. Father God, I love you. I thank you for this time to share in your word, Lord, that we get to know you more through your word, through these stories that will benefit the people you were talking to, but also us today. Help us, Lord, to reorient our understanding of the world through who you are and what you've promised. And so we thank you for all your grace and your mercy. May it fill our lives and our day-to-day as we introduce people to you and watch your kingdom grow. In your heavenly name, Lord, I love you.